The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves, the podcast formerly known as Double X for Thursday, June 14th, the seduction of sex in the city edition. <laughs> I'm Noreen Malone of New York Magazine, and I'm joined in the New York studios by June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Noreen. We are a little lonely today. Anna Holmes was going to host with us. She unfortunately was felled by illness at the very last minute. Uh, so June and I are going to wing it with some help from Verilyn Williams, our producer, who is going to come by for one of our segments and for recommendations. But June, we are just going to be doing a lot of quality one-on-one time. One-on-one. It's going to be like <laughs> just really personal conversation that thousands, maybe even millions of people are going to be listening in on. Millions. I think this is going to be our breakthrough moment. <laughs> Could be. Sorry, Hannah. Hannah is uh, out this week, uh, regularly scheduled out. She's um, having a beautiful vacation in that country known as Europe. Lovely. Love lovely. Um, so, June. Yes. This is my first time recording on the show now known as The Waves. Me too. It feels a little weird. Yeah. It feels I, good. I'm so into the new name, but at the same time, I keep starting sentences. Well, we'll be recording Double X. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, The Waves. So I'm just, I'm almost kind of taking bets with myself about when I'll stop, like, defaulting unthinkingly to Double X Gabfest. Yeah. I'm so much happier with the waves. You like it too, right? I like it too. So I actually, so there are a lot of reasons we called it the waves. Yes. You know, if you listened last week, it's because of the waves of feminism. It's because of radio waves. It's because of the waves that we are going to make on this June and Noreen only podcast. (laughs) A lot of waves. Um, There's also a Virginia Woolf book called The Waves, which I've never read. I ordered on Amazon. I'm going to... uh, update listeners when I get to it in my big stack of books later this summer. I also bought it last week. Uh, I also have never read it. Uh, so I, 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 maybe we should have a book club. I, I'm sure Hannah's read it because Hannah's already read everything. <laughs> it's a very pretty cover. I bought the uh, Kindle version oh. because I'm cheap. June. You can get a used book. Um, the other thing that I think is really cool that a couple of listeners wrote in to say about the waves is that it reminded them of the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service, which I had never heard of, but which was the women-only naval reserve for the duration of World War II. Yeah. So, like, totally feminist connotation that we just didn't even know about. One of uh, our Slate colleagues, her grandmother, served in the waves, and so that was a nice extra connection that was wow. very positive. All right, so let's get into it. All right. So let's wave. Um, <laughs> so... We will be talking about Bill Clinton. He's back on a book tour, and he is refusing to participate in any kind of a Me Too reckoning about his past behavior. Then, our second subject, is seduction dead? A new essay by Laura Kipnis in New York Magazine tackles that question, also for the post-Me Too era. And then, Sex and the City is 20 years old, and the internet was filled with more think pieces than Carrie Bradshaw had shoes. (laughs) We check in on how it's aged. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss, okay, help me out, June, even though I'm the one who proposed this, <laughs> we'll discuss if it's sexist to cut female grifters a break while being harder on men who grift right. in our culture. We f- somehow we seem to find female grifters charming and interesting and almost seductive. That's, What's that about? Is that sexist? We'll is discuss. that sexist? Is that how we got here? We'll find <laughs> out. So if you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting our brand new updated URL, slate.com slash the waves plus. That's the waves plus all spelled out. All right. Bill Clinton. 
former President Bill Clinton, we've heard of him, is on a book tour. He's written a thriller with James Patterson, which is called The President is Missing. And no one is really talking about that because everyone wants to ask Bill Clinton if he's thinking about whether some of the things in his past he should have handled differently or should be thinking about differently now, given the moment of cultural change around sexual assault and workplace power imbalances. Spoiler alert, he is not. Uh, He says that he likes the Me Too movement. He said it's way overdue. But he added, it doesn't mean I agree with everything. I still have some questions about some of the decisions that have been made. So, June, do you have any questions about some of the decisions that have been made? Oh, my, do I? <laughs> you know, so this this the, the interview that we're talking about, as you say, um, Bill Clinton and, and James Patterson, who wrote and listeners, I am making heavy air quotes there because I think it's openly acknowledged that James Patterson doesn't write his books. He like kind of comes up with the stories and he hires writers to do them. Oh, that's funny. I thought James Patterson was writing it and Bill Clinton was sitting back and like calling him at 2 a.m. being like, I had this idea. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I think it is a collaboration and, you Um, know... Between who knows how many people. (laughs) Exactly. So I think Bill, the the story uh, that I've uh, encountered is that Bill Clinton kind of shared some views about the presidency and what it's like to actually be in that job. And then James Patterson, you know, does what he always does, which is, um, you know, he comes up with the storylines and then he... You know, it's almost like a farm system that he has writers who actually do the writing. And again, he's open about it. It's it's not one of those situations where uh, there's a hidden uh, sort of system of, of writers. It's it's all very above board, kind of, although it's not exactly uh, indicated on the book cover. But I don't think it's a big surprise anyway. Well, this is not the sin for right, which exactly, exactly. No, no, that is not the problem. They were on the Today Show last week. It was June 4th. And on the Today Show, uh, Craig Melvin, who is not somebody I'm familiar with, but he's, uh, uh, you know, he was doing the interview and he was really pushing Bill Clinton on the Me Too moment. And yes, this is very much a post Matt Lauer Today yes, Show. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't watch the Today Show. I'm at work then. So I, I guess I was a bit surprised by like the tone of the interview. It wasn't what I expected. And clearly it wasn't what Bill Clinton expected either. Um and yes, he was a bit exasperated because they weren't asking about the book. But, you know, Craig Melvin is not an idiot. And he was asking the real question, which is, Bill, you've not really been making yourself available to the press or the people since the Me Too moment arrived. And uh, what are you thinking? And, you know, as he said the, the quote that you gave, but he also, I think, was pretty testy. I was also oh, yeah. surprised by his tone because... Um, you know, he's a politician. He's a politician who got to the top job in the world. That makes him a good politician. And yet he was he was just snitty. He was in and he was really behaving as as our pal Christina Calciarucci pointed out in Slate. He was really pulling some moves from the from the um, what is our president's name? The Trump. <laughs> he was pulling some moves from the Donald Trump playbook. Um he was deflective and defensive. He was talking. He didn't quite use the phrase fake news, but mm-hmm. he was talking essentially about false facts and missing facts, and but in this very vague way that just really didn't know exactly what he was talking about. And he absolutely did not take responsibility for his involvement with Monica Lewinsky and how that all played out, which I actually was surprised by. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, he... 
was super defensive. I don't think he was expecting the tone of the questioning. I think they, you know, his press people aren't idiots. They must have expected something, but maybe something a little bit more pro forma. Um, And it seemed to me like maybe he bungled what he was supposed to say. He he said, do you think President Kennedy should have resigned? Do you believe President Johnson should have resigned? He was essentially then also sort of casting himself as the victim. He was like, I've paid for this over the last 20 years, which is sort of like if you compare what his life has been compared to what Monica Lewinsky's has been, she's become synonymous with the blowjob in our culture. And he has, you know, been an eminent ex-president, right? Like, so it was sort of rich for him to cast himself in the role of the victim here. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me is that well, what people are actually focused on with Clinton right now is still the Lewinsky thing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the women like uh, Juanita Broderick have been pretty vocal in this moment, and people, I think, do give them more credence than they did yeah. 30 years ago or yeah. 25 years ago or whatever it was. Um, but what's changed with Monica Lewinsky is that she herself has written in Vanity Fair about how, you know, she's always maintained that this was a consensual affair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, during the Me Too moment, she rethought some of the power imbalances and the ways that the affair came about. And it's actually like a really nuanced reading of what that was. And and I think Clinton was just sort of missing. He thought he was being accused of something perhaps worse than he was being accused of. Right. Like yeah. it actually would have been not easy for him to sort of think about it. But he could have said, yes, like. In this moment, I have thought about things differently, you know, norms. And he tried to say it later. You know, he you could see him trying to say norms have changed. Right. And, um, but he really screwed it up because what he said is, I think the norms have really ter- changed in terms of what you can do to somebody against their will, <laughs> how much you can crowd their space, make them miserable at work. And, you know, he was, I think, to give him a little bit of credit, he was trying to, like, applaud that but it really made it sound like he was like well you used to be able to rape people and that seems like it's not okay anymore it was just like stunning it really was and i mean that so that particular speech which i which i think got attention after the fact like it was kind of one of those things that's discovered a little bit after it first is out there because he said that on the pbs news hour so again, not the first, not his first bite at the apple. Mm-hmm. This was a, this was kind of on his rehabilitation tour in a way. Um, you know, he'd he'd realized at that point that he was gonna have to somehow deal with uh, his behavior uh, twenty five, thirty years ago. That he was gonna have to make a statement. That he couldn't just bluster because the response to the Today Show interview had been so negative that he was gonna have to just confront this and deal with it. And he completely blew it. And again, it wasn't he should have known what was coming. He's he's a superb politician. Like that's the reputation that he has. And yet he was really not he was just blowing these these opportunities. And then he also he went on Colbert and that was like his third chance. Well, so I think a few things are distinct about this. One, that most of the men who have been accused of things in this moment have uh put their head in the sand, right? Like they haven't um, gone on like a, a, live, a live TV tour, right? right because, right. you know, any PR person would like, you know, be fired the minute they let their client under that right. kind of fire do that. So this is actually the first time we've seen a man sort of, although maybe Franken did some press, I'm not quite sure. A little tiny bit, maybe. But this is sort of the first time we've seen someone like sort of grappling with this in public. 
in this particular way, right. even though it is historical, someone being, you know, yeah. called to um, sort of improvise. Uh, and then the other thing is just like the, the Clintons have always thought of themselves as victims. Right. And Hillary Clinton, too, you know, for all that she is, um, you know, a feminist and uh, important in that movement has like this has always been such a weird blind spot for her. Yeah, Bill um, has always been her Achilles heel. Bill has been her Achilles heel. The Lewinsky thing has been her Achilles heel. But they really have always felt so persecuted. And so within that mindset, right, they're coming from that. And this is the point at which, uh, you know, they they could actually point to this and say, like, we were a little bit persecuted because of the way that Ken Starr handled this. And as a a side note, uh, Caitlin Flanagan, the writer for The Atlantic, had a tweet that I thought was interesting. And, uh, you know, there's been all this discussion of why didn't Bill Clinton apologize to Monica Lewinsky? She essentially said, Ken Starr is the one who owes Monica Lewinsky an apology and Bill Clinton owes Juanita Broderick and Kathleen Willey more than an apology, basically. Which, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. So I thought, it's, I mean, it's interesting how much people are focused on the apology. Yeah, I mean, the the call for an apology is, like, it's reasonable on its face. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't he said he's sorry to Monica Lewinsky? And, and, and he's allowed that to become the story. Like, he... On the Today Show, he made this vague, oh, I've apologized. And he meant, you know, it's again, it's right back to I didn't have sex with that woman. It's like mm-hmm. he meant, apparently, deep in the recesses of his brain, <laughs> that he had apologized to the nation and she's part of the nation. But Well, it is a very lawyerly framing. Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, although actually maybe even a, a more accurate one than I did not have sexual relations <laughs> with that woman. Right, 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 right. The thing that I'm interested in, okay, so let's think about his question about or his his statement about how norms have changed, right? Mm-hmm. And then part of part of the way that he defended his actions um, on the on the Today Show was saying like you know Kennedy, right. Johnson, like going hearkening back to sort of mid century men mm-hmm. who, while in office, had you know done very very bad things that maybe we don't even know the full story about because the press was um, so much more genteel mm-hmm. in that day. Mm-hmm. But so and so he's saying that like since the 1990s or 1980s norms have changed. That's actually not true. Right. Right. Uh, which we know in part because of another part of his defensiveness, which is that he talked about when how when he was the governor of Arkansas, he had like a commission or a department on sexual harassment. He talks right. about all the women that he had promoted. So he actually was operating within a framework of and especially the Lewinsky stuff was in a post Anita Hill moment. There had been a nationwide discussion of what sexual harassment was. You know, the 1980s and 1990s, although they are different than today's moment, that was not 1955, right? right? right, Like things had changed. And he's sort of conflating history and wanting us to sort of have sympathy for him as someone who, you know, is a creature of another time. And he is a creature of another time. It's just not that different of a time. I think this is something that we've seen, like one of the most unsatisfactory responses to what we're calling Me Too is norms have changed. But really, when when people examine, well, what are you talking about? Are you saying that you, you know, that consent didn't matter back then? Right. Are you saying that it was okay for the most powerful man in the world to essentially have a relationship with the most junior person in his workplace? Well, I think that he's saying yes, right? But but it wasn't, right? I mean, it really wasn't. Even then, it wasn't. You know, as somebody who was not only alive, but, you know, already an adult, 
I can tell you that it was we already knew then that you the boss should not be having an affair with the most junior person in in the workplace. Was it because of the affairness, though, that people I think that's part of what it was, is that he was a married man. Yeah. And, you know, she was using I mean, uh, while while on the one hand, I don't think that, you know, he's correct in saying that the, the culture has changed so much. It has changed some like right. Like that was the Howard Stern era which was then followed by the Girls Gone Wild. Yeah, like, yeah. it is true that there are, like, cues in our culture that, that are very, very different than they were then. On the other hand, like, um, yes, you're right. Like, work workplace policy is not yeah, right. any different. And maybe it was less, it wasn't as clearly stated. And now it has been because of situations like that. We've said, hey, I didn't know I couldn't do that. You did. But yeah. now we're, you're not going to have that excuse anymore. One thing that I found interesting was... First of all, like his imprecision, as you say, he's Mm -hmm. both at the same time lawyerly and careful in his framing and simultaneously careless because he was sort of, you know, he he just was making a lot of vague statements. And he also seemed to be what I interpreted to be saying, you know, when he was like, it's gone too far. Mm -hmm. I assumed, which you should never do because you know what it makes of you and me. That he was referring to Al Franken. No, he did talk about Al Franken. But then later, did he later kind of confirm that that was indeed what he was talking about? I believe he did, yes. Yeah. He he did talk yeah. about yeah. Al Franken. And I think he said, well, I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. And I think that was a little much. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, that was that was something that was keenly debated. Because, again, it's like it's that asymmetric uh, kind of, you know, putting your hands up that that. Yeah, I think it was right for the Democrats to apply pressure on Franken, but it's not clear cut because I think as many people have pointed out, that's kind of for the voters of Minnesota to decide or the Democrats throw up their hands when the Republicans just carry on. One of the things I'm interested in this whole moment is like how quickly can the culture really metabolize change like this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, something that became apparent over the months, especially the early months of this, was that so many of the men who were being called to task were older. Not entirely, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it certainly seemed like it was a, a pattern that uh, correlated in some ways with age, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you just say to people, get with the program and expect them to do it right away? Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, yes, but right. maybe not. You right. know, I feel like it's like the whole country is going jogging on a full stomach or something and like it's <laughs> right, just not right, going right, well. Right. <laughs> like, Although, I mean, yeah, I agree. It's, I also think it, that can be an excuse. I mean, sure. it does, you know, again, it gets harder to change as you get older. You, you're, you know, your grooves are deeper set, but you still can get out of them. And he's still, though, a disappointment. He's not running for anything. He's never going to be elected for anything. At this point, his wife isn't either. He had such an opportunity to just like, in a sense, it's not about sacrificing himself, but let go of the defensiveness, but well, he's a, too much of a of a human, I guess. Well, it's a misreading. I think he's in legacy preservation yeah, mode, but yeah. it's a misreading of who will be writing the history books and now. Yeah, it's yeah. like a, it's like he's not he's not sort of playing chess with that. He's not thinking about it correctly. Good point. All right, that is enough, Bill Clinton, for now. <laughs> if you have thoughts about Bill Clinton, send us an email at thewaves at slate.com. I believe the old double X email will still work, but let's let's do the new one. Let's, well, let's try move it on, out. people. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> All right. From Bill Clinton to seduction. What a transition. There are so many jokes that I am not <laughs> going to make. But before we get to seduction. Yes, we do have a couple of things to announce. The first is our Live show, The Wave, the show formerly known as the Double X Gab Fest, will be live in D.C. at the Hamilton Theater on July 17th at 7.30 p.m. 
You can get tickets at slate.com slash live slash the waves. And we hope to see you there in D.C. or if you're from Maryland or Virginia and want to drive in, lovely evening. Yeah. In fact, we will give a prize for the person from the furthest away. Wow. Yeah. You've got you to just <laughs> let us know. We'll have a contest. It'll be a very severely uh, judged contest. So just let us know. Exciting. All right. And then um, some sad news. Our beloved production assistant, Daniel Schrader, is leaving us, but he's not going very far. He is working full time uh, at Slate as a producer. But that means that we, along with the Culture Gabfest, are looking for someone who can work as a production assistant supporting both podcasts. So there is there in your feed for both the Waves and the Culture Gabfest, there is a job description if you are an audio kind of person, which you should be if you're interested in the job. <laughs> But if you're also a visual kind of person, you can go to slate.com slash jobs and check it out. We are looking for our new Daniel. <laughs> Come be awesome for us. <laughs> with us. <laughs> for us, with us, all of the above. All right. So seduction. Oof. Does seduction have a future? <laughs> so wonders Laura Kibnis in New York Magazine. She writes that it, quote, seems dubious, coaxing people into things they're initially reluctant, though might secretly yearn to do in the realm of sex and romance, though a time-honored ritual of literature, movies, and perhaps a few well-burnished memories has become rather suspect. HR officers are standing by. Also, the Internet. Charm itself smells a little rapey, an illegitimate exercise of power. All right. So I think the first thing that we need to do is sort of define our terms June, what are we talking about here? What is the line between seduction and unwanted advances, as you understand it? I'm not sure that Laura Kipnis uh, in this piece does a very good job of clarifying exactly where she puts that line. Mm -hmm. I mean, this I I admire Laura very much as a writer. Uh, I think she's somebody who's capable of great precision. There are some great lines in this piece, but there are also some lines I am not fond of. And I also feel that ultimately... She is building a bit of a straw man. What's the straw man that you... Actually, maybe it's not a straw man specifically as just the case for... I think she's actually building a case for seduction. Mm -hmm. I think she's... She's seducing us with her prose. Yeah, she really is. That's (laughs) a very good way of putting it. And I just am not sure... Or maybe it's just that I don't share her affection for seduction or her positive feelings about that act. For me, which is defined as what? Which is defined, in my understanding of her piece, as wooing someone, Uh as starting from a position where one person has a desire, the other person doesn't share that desire at the beginning and is persuaded to fall for Mm -hmm. the person. Mm -hmm. And Kipnis presents it as a very romantic thing, a very desirable thing, something that you know, is is she associates it with charm and, you know, with swooning and all these things, which to me are, are positive attributes, things that are desirable. But I'm just not convinced that, or rather I just don't share the, the, the sort of sparkly feelings about, you know, negotiating of, 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 of wooing, of, of seduction. To me, like, seduction sounds like a great word. Oh, everybody wants to be seduced. But if it's about persuading you that you're wrong about your feelings and that actually you should be, uh, you know, going with this person, you should be down, you should be DTF this person who wants you. I, I don't know. The, the, just like say, putting that into words, it, 
isn't something that seems all that desirable to me. I don't know. I think she actually builds a pretty compelling case for it. Um, one of the things that she's focused on that I think is not something that that is necessarily obvious about seduction is that it's about the other person, the person seducing you, recognizing you as special, right. as the singular object of their affections. And that's part of the way that they seduce you is by seeing these little things about you that other people don't see and and you know, it doesn't necessarily go so far as to say it, but but to be seduced is to be a little bit narcissistic, to be thrilled by the idea that someone... By the attention. By the attention, absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's not it's not just the idea that this is happening in the wake of the Me Too stuff. It also, I think it's interesting to, to think about this happening in the context of online dating, which is actually how most people date right now, yeah. right? Yep. And so when you're online dating, it's not a seduction, right? It is, you know, first of all, it's... People are not special inherently online. They are like a buffet of options on your swipe. And you're like, yeah, you're 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 putting some on your plate. You're not putting others on your plate. But the the general sense is that like everyone is replaceable. Right. So that's an inherently Mm anti-seduction kind of zone. Right. And also like people are very upfront with their desires and preferences and and sexual situations in online dating. Like there's no sort of no romance. No. Right. There's no like mystery Mm -hmm. about it, I would Mm -hmm. say, which is, I think, probably another component of seduction. So I do think there's like there's there's the moment is ripe for some um, nostalgia about seduction. But the thing is, Kipnis, as far as I recall, in my reading of the piece, never mentions online dating. She sets up some situations that just felt completely projected to me. So she starts with this anecdote about a woman, a married woman, she says, who was uh, seduced by a man in a Facebook group, you know, started with messages. It moves to texting and sexting and, and you know, all of the the instruments of, of modern seduction. Mm-hmm. And then the woman discovers that the man isn't only doing this with her, that he's having very similar relationships with other women. And Lily, the person, the you know, who, this anecdote uh, that begins the piece, Lily, then is mad because she realizes she's not special and she wants Laura to, you know, expose this man online. And Laura's like, yeah, that's not something I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's just so much projection, so much like anecdata. It's, it's, you know, this is one example. And it, there's just so much that's the, I don't know that I just find that 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 setup very woolly. It's both it draws you in because I think we're all interested in that situation, but it's not really about anything except the specialness, which I agree is something that's very like that's a very perceptive point to pull out because that is one of the hardest things to talk about in terms of like what does being in a relationship means? Like in a way, it means that somebody is saying. I'm recognizing your specialness. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that is very, very kind of lovely. Like that's to be, you know, being seen is one of the best parts of being in a relationship or being in a uh, sort of a, especially at the beginning of a relationship. But then it, to me, she widens it out into something that's not really relevant. Uh, and that which I also, is what? which is this very notion of sex as, conquest or uh-huh. romance as conquest of 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 overcoming someone's kind of better feelings or someone's sense sense and appealing to their emotions and just sort of 
and just as I think I really see it as like targeting someone. And to me, it just doesn't seem positive of targeting a a person who you want to be, uh, you know, your your special someone. And I just don't see anything positive in that. Yeah, I would actually flip it. I think what she's doing is not widening it, but narrowing it. I think what she's describing is actually a subset of seduction, a very specific kind of like, um, you know, she she cites examples of like, you know, a professor and a student having an illicit affair. Right. She's she's citing these examples where there's a frisson of sort of inappropriateness. Right. And I think she has some some, you know, nostalgia for that kind of thing which she's or or the you know the married man being seduced that kind of thing but i actually think like as you were saying almost every relationship if you enter into it is a seduction right like maybe not a sort of classic vampy one in in the like yeah um (laughs) right right exactly um but but the idea that you know that you are drawing someone into you and they are drawing like ideally it's a it's a can it can it exist to have a two sided seduction? I mean, well, I think that, that's it, the odd part of it yeah. because, like, again, she to me it was almost like the the thing that she was suggesting mm-hmm. was almost like a fishing expedition. Like, like the 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 seducer throws out his or her, but as she said, she's mostly talking about heterosexual situations in which, again, in this kind of slightly hazy historical sense, it was typically the he was the seducer. Although we looked at a list of famous seducers in history, and there were some women there on that were list. Cleopatra, Catherine the Great, both queens, but still. Um, so this, <laughs> the seducer throws out the, you know, casts out the, the I don't know enough about fishing, but like throws out the hook, the casts lure. it, the lure, and like is basically like using the reel to like, you know, look, this, yeah. doesn't this tidbit look nice? And in that sense, it doesn't feel like it's not a real sharing. It's like, again, a targeting. And, and it, that feels very one way to me. And that's not something that's interesting. It's like a charming person goes out there, you know, setting their lure. Like, you know, there's like a Pokemon mm-hmm. image here. You know, they've put a lure module on themselves, you know. Well, and then like, what, what, like, that's not actually sexy to me that's just that's like being the object of a hunt oh i think it's kind of sexy i don't know come on june you're telling me someone to me someone set out and like sending you notes and flowers and like noticing all these things but you wouldn't be into that i don't think i would rosemary's a lucky woman (laughs) i mean i just don't think that's maybe maybe it is like really purely like i don't i to me that's kind of creepy yeah i mean so that's why i started this by asking like what is the line between this and unwanted yeah advances i mean a lot of people you know typically the older generation i found has although i don't want to like tar people in that way but 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 there has there was this (laughs) moment of concern after the initial round of me too stuff like um, you know, will this be the end of flirting? And I guess my response to that is like, with flirting, I think it's pretty clear usually when something is yeah. wanted or unwanted. Right. And but seduction does present a more interesting case. Like, you know, if someone is not interested but not outright rejecting you, are you okay to pursue it? I mean, I think it's like it's all a question of degrees, right? It's a question of how aggressive is this person? Is it like? You know, is it uh, sort of, I think obviously if something crosses the physical line, that's not okay. But if this person is like writing you emails, even though you're not necessarily feeling romantically about them, is that, you know, like it, it's just, it's like um, there are no sort of hard and fast rules. I'm rem- As you're speaking, Noreen, I'm reminded of something that always comes up that, I, again, I just never, it doesn't quite res- 
resound in me or, or like mm-hmm. I, it doesn't it doesn't quite seem right to me of people in in exactly this kind of conditions that you're talking about also bemoaning that sex or relationships have become such a negotiation mm-hmm. and and I just again I don't see what's wrong with that like I feel like getting you know being really clear about consent which again when you just say that word consent some people are like oh my god that's so unsexy like it really it isn't and it doesn't need to be and there's a response that's like that's just not sexy and I and I don't think that's as universal as the people who say that believe. Well, it depends how clinical and lawyerly the discussion is, right? There's as in all things, you know, <laughs> right. everything, it's all about, uh, as we always say in journalism, it's about the execution. Right. Well, do you, I mean, do you think she's crazy to think that um, that this reckoning that we still are undergoing has changed rules around this kind of thing? Or nor- let's say norms, not rules. Uh, I don't, I mean, like, I don't, I get nostalgia, I guess. You can't control nostalgia, but I don't I don't feel any nostalgia about, gosh, isn't it too bad that, you know, first-year students can't have relationships with their professors anymore? I'm really not nostalgic for that. But a lot of people are. It's interesting. Like, people have written, um, you know, really interesting stuff about their own conflicted feelings about exactly that relationship, like, right? So they recognize the power imbalance. That's also part of what they liked about it at the time mm-hmm. and they got a lot out of it and they weren't, came out relatively unscathed. But then who can say how unscathed? Right. I mean, right. so and everything can be scathing. It's not like right. only clearly uh, inappropriate relationships damage you or hurt you in some way as well as giving you positive things. I guess my take on this is that, like, I don't think that romance is going to be ruined by Me Too. It would be unusual if it weren't in some small way altered. Mm-hmm. But I actually think if you're thinking about if you're considering the ways that romance has changed, like the phenomenon of online dating is just so much more yeah, relevant yeah, than yeah. any of what's happened here. What, you know, what Me Too is affecting are sort of like the uh, the bad cases, right? Which yeah. were always bad. Yeah, and right, right. So some, some men or women might be more careful now in, in certain ways, but I, I don't know that that um, is a bad thing and I don't know that it knocks seduction out of the park. I think I'm way more into the idea of seduction than you are, June. <laughs> it's just, it's... You know, there's it's fun. Are you telling me it's fun? I'm telling you it's fun. Jim. All right. Well, I'll I can just I'll just have to accept that, I think. <laughs> All right. So if you want to weigh in on whether seduction and romance and flirting are dead, or if you want to seduce us with your prose, write <laughs> in to the waves at slate.com. All right. So from seduction to sex and city, we are joined by Verilyn Williams, our producer for this topic. Hello, hi, Verilyn. Uh, can I say, Noreen, you like also? I don't know whether it's spring, but you just like you're like bubbly. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You have a glow. Thank you. Well, we're wearing, we're wearing the same color. You are. Now. We are. You're kind of playing on the same clothes, and I'm just in a. Diff- I'm like in a wintry, cool mood, but you guys are in a sort of spring, summery. Well, you're the sky to yeah. our yes, that's a nice one. All right, so we started our sex and city talk with some fashion talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1998, HBO viewers were introduced to Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, and Miranda, the four 30-something New York single women who would become iconic for the show. Uh, they also became iconic for being a set of personality types. You could take endless BuzzFeed quizzes about which one you were. You could buy a cupcake at the same place where Carrie and the rest of the women bought cupcakes. You could buy a self-help book that was premised on a line from the show. <laughs> Sex and the City became a whole industry. And on the occasion of its 20th anniversary, a lot of people wanted to assess 
what the show has wrought. Um, you know, is it a dated show? Are there themes that matter? Was it sort of good or bad for the women? Uh, so first, Verilyn, what is your relationship to the show? Oh, goodness. Well, I didn't have HBO okay. <laughs> growing up. But um, once it started playing on, like, you know, prime, like network television, I would watch it endlessly. So you watched the Baudelaireized version? Yeah, there was no sex scenes and, like, no explicit sex scenes. And in no the, swearing. No swearing. Wow. Although you can kind of guess yeah. when the swearing was happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was a huge fan. I also know that Beyonce um, was a fan of Sex in the City, and that definitely influenced my like for it. Um, but I didn't think critically of it at all. Like, that's come later. Oh, interesting. Okay. And June, do you have a relationship to the show? Absolutely. So I, I watched it when it first aired, and uh-huh. I would have people over because we were the only house that had HBO. Ah. And, and uh, in my memory, I don't know if I, I, I meant to fact check this, but I suppose it doesn't matter because it's what my memory is, but of people coming to watch The Sopranos mm-hmm. and Sex and the City, like, that was the kind of the moment when... What a fun night. <laughs> no. Um and I hadn't watched it at all since. Like, I would watch it when it aired, and then I, I tend not to go back to comedies at all because, in my mind, they don't age well. And also, like, there's enough new television. I don't need to go watch old stuff. But when I did go back and I watched several of the episodes that HBO recommends as essential episodes, <laughs> uh, which I think means not problematic episodes, uh, and I was impressed by it. I was shocked by the smoking. Mm-hmm. For a lot of the early seasons, I, I wasn't able to quite note the place where Carrie stopped smoking but Carrie would be smoking and everybody would be smoking indoors and mm-hmm. like I had forgotten that that was a thing yeah. and of course that was a thing for most of my life but now that just seems horrible well that and awful that was a big plot point in her relationship with Aiden ah, Aiden I, I should say I should say that I watch Sex and the City like emotional comfort food sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like if I want to watch something just like totally familiar and fun that mm-hmm. is what i turn to uh-huh. and aiden is the one that got away he was the good boyfriend if my memory serves me right right yeah he was he was performatively good if yeah. you ask so, me oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. i never liked <laughs> he, him he had a furniture store yes exactly yeah, he made furniture with his hands he had like <laughs> hands that were not smooth but whatever um <laughs> but he i was just i actually watched an episode where he they broke up because she confessed that she had gone back with Big, who, of course, was her one true love. And mm-hmm. I mean, none of these relationships actually seemed mm. that good to me. Well, it was interesting. Emily Nussbaum wrote what I thought was a really wonderful essay, not on the occasion of this 20th anniversary, but a few years ago, uh, a reconsideration in The New Yorker, where she talked about I believe she she was writing about it because there was a book that had been written about, like, you know, sort of the 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 prestige television boom and there was a lot about male anti-heroes the sopranos and breaking bad and she pointed out that um this was actually really dismissive of sex and the city and so then she went into her sort of justification for why the show was great um and one of the things that she argues is that actually carrie bradshaw was a female anti-hero and because i mean she is like when you watch she's like kind of a horrible person right and in an interesting way and what emily argues is that um, you sort of watch Carrie sort of devolve in certain ways, devolve emotionally over the course of the show when she goes from 32 to 38 and she gets spooked by the idea of being alone forever, right? The show starts and she's like on top of the world 
she's you know she's got a great job she's got these four friends and then she sort of watches there's there's almost like a, a conservative undercurrent of the show you watch her sort of almost in a like edith wharton house of murph way kind of get undone by like staying a little bit past her sell-by date and also by this relationship as oh my God. with sell-by date that just hit me in a, in a weird way <laughs> yeah it's not a great term um uh you know, this relationship with with Big, who's sort of horrible to her, but gets in her head. And so Emily's argument is that this show is actually a really complicated um, character study of someone whose personality is slowly changing and not necessarily for the better. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, you don't get a lot of ana- like deep analysis of Sex and the City. You get a lot of discussion of, you know, uh, sort of individual episodes and things like he's just not that into you mm-hmm. or like individual but like the a post-it breakup the post-it like, breakup there are these right. iconic moments that keep getting totally totally and i thought it was interesting to have that reading of it mm-hmm. and that really stuck with me and and i think what emily was kind of doing was reclaiming it as smart and interesting yeah i mean i feel like you can make that case for you know women's art forms television types of books, types of writing being undervalued for putting the characters and especially the character of Carrie um, Bradshaw and especially the character of Carrie Bradshaw in the place that they deserve while also saying that although it's really a very funny comedy Mm -hmm. at times, it also did have, it didn't always manage it's managed to make the points it wanted to make in the way that I think it wanted to make them. Like, it is not wrong to view it as an exploration and a celebration of retail therapy. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. for Carrie, she really does. Having, having again, watched maybe 10 episodes over the course of Sunday, it is amazing from season one to season six, how often she just goes and spends money that she doesn't have. But it's not clear that that's a bad thing and that that's a flaw and that it just seems like, hey, go buy some shoes, go buy some $400 shoes and you'll feel great. Like it, they, they didn't really calibrate their point. Well, there are episodes where that becomes a problem. Like it becomes yeah. clear that she has been, you know, she has to borrow money from mm. one of her friends in mm-hmm. order to purchase her apartment. Like that is a, you know, that is a high level oh, problem. two apartments right. Right, that she puts together. <laughs> and right. So one of the things we read by Sonia Saria in the Vanity Fair article was she talks about it as a fantasy, that this is not a serious, like don't, like this, maybe that speaks a little bit against what Emily Nesbaum was saying, but like this is at the end of the day a fantasy of what it means to be a single woman in New York of a certain age the ability like as a journalist to feel like oh as a freelance journalist I could buy a $400 pair of shoes it's always spring which is something I never <laughs> realized until I was reading it so I was like oh That's wow funny. yeah it is always spring there are no people of color yeah. <laughs> except for that one episode with um, Blair Underwood I think is his name when um, I think Miranda was dating the black guy in her building Blair Underwood is always the right answer yes. if you're talking about miscegenation <laughs> in, in American television I mean actually that reading of it as a fantasy makes me okay with it a lot more because it's like of course this is not reality like this is not something that I can even aspire to and even you know as I've gotten older and thought a lot about the ways that show has come to um, exemplify what it means to be single in New York City but also for a specific type of woman mm-hmm. right a white woman like that's not like if I was single in New York City in my 30s it'll be all about like being undesirable and it'll just have a different connotation to it all of that is true but there are certain things that 
don't always make it into that kind of fantasy about Sex and the City. And it, I think it is something about New York. And one of the things that struck me as I was watching this weekend is now I live in New York. Mm. I'd been to New York when I watched it first time around, but I didn't really like, I didn't have that thrill of recognizing that place or, <laughs> or understanding, what, understanding what going to that place actually meant. And even though their jobs were not presented realistically, like they do focus on their work and they are here because they want to make it in New York. And yes, part of making it is, you know, getting to go to the best parties and finding the right kind of men. But also a lot of their men problems are not exactly specific to New York, but are more pronounced in New York, I think. I mean, it takes all that and exaggerates it, I think. Yeah, everything's you know? exaggerated. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, a lot of the biggest criticisms you hear about it now is just like, you know, that episode with Kim Cattrall where she's Samantha. Actually, Samantha when she's dating a black guy and all of a sudden she goes into like black vernacular. Well, here's my question with something like that and in general. I'm not sure the show always likes its characters. Mm, I think one yeah, of the things that yeah. it's doing, and this reminds me of some of the discussions of girls, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. on the one hand, the show is aspirational in terms of the products and the lifestyle, but I don't think that these people are meant to be sort of role models in any way. I mean, like, it wants to show you, I think maybe I'm giving it a little bit too much credit, but I actually think there's like a little bit of a reactionary streak in Sex and the City. It wants to show you that, yeah, this like power publicist is actually a little bit racist because that person Mm -hmm. might be a little bit racist Mm -hmm. in real life, like Mm -hmm. even while she's sort of performatively dating a black guy. And it wants to show you that like they're they're hateable. I mean, Carrie in particular is like very hateable. And I think that's a kind of a bold choice for a show like that to make and kind of a high wire act where you sort of both want their lives and like Mm -hmm. really don't, you know. Did you hate her as you were watching it? Because I feel like in hindsight, I can think about how problematic she is. But watching it, I always was very affectionate. Like, I never hated her watching it. That, again, that was something that for me was surprised me in this rewatch, you know, this brief day of Sex and the City. <laughs> because in my memory, the other, you know, her friends were minor characters mm-hmm. somewhat, you know, key but minor. And it was all about Carrie and Carrie. I must have liked her because I kept watching it. And certainly especially Miranda. Miranda seems so much more important and so much... Mm. I mean, again, she's somebody who has a lot of problems as is, is you know, that is too self-sufficient, is too... is, is you know, is, is, re- is who can be read as a brittle, harsh person and, in fact, is it's just that her armor is yeah. so overdeveloped. Well, one thing that I'm interested in, again, to, to call back to this Emily Nussbaum essay, so, so you know, I'm a Miranda has become like a shorthand in yeah. our culture for like a certain kind of like, for, by the way, I am a Miranda. <laughs> I didn't just choose that randomly. But, uh, but you know, it, it means a certain kind of a thing. And, and a, you know, a Samantha means a certain kind of a thing. And those aren't necessarily new um, right. archetypes. They were sort of updated for this milieu. But actually, what Emily... Nussbaum argued in this really interesting way is that actually the show was like this version of Crossfire where they were each representing (laughs) different sort of, uh, you know, views of the world that weren't just so there were these um, there were these like continuums that she she calls out. So there's this emotional continuum. Um, So she says Carrie and Charlotte were romantics and Miranda and Samantha were cynics when it comes to emotions. And I think that's true. But the alliances are like a little bit complicated because then on ideological grounds, Miranda and Carrie are second wave feminists 
who believed in egalitarianism, right, like have an equal relationship, all that good stuff. And Charlotte and Samantha were third wave feminists who wanted to exploit femininity from opposing angles. Mm. And then when it came to sex itself, Miranda and Charlotte were prudes, while Samantha and Carrie were libertines. Um, And so that all of their debates, when they're going to the coffee shop and having these debates, you can sort of unpack it along those grounds and that these archetypes that seem simple are actually complicated emotional characters. I don't know that the, you know, the the, um, creators had that in mind when they were doing it, but you can really read it that way and it Mm -hmm. makes it sort of a richer understanding. You you absolutely can. And that is, and like, I feel like such a rube for being, for having this response but I wish, again, I wish it was clearer. Like, I wish they were clearer mm-hmm. archetypes because I'm none of them. I'm, you know, partly Charlotte, partly Miranda. Mm-hmm. Like, does anybody actually know a Carrie? Like, mm. it's, it's so. I mean, I related to Carrie's like at overanalyzing on dates. Like, I, I'm definitely that person. I was. <laughs> Did you ever that, wonder? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I could totally see myself after a date. Like, oh, you know, blowjobs. Like, <laughs> when did we bring this up? Like, you know, I'm totally that person that's going to like, you know, analyze everything that happens after a date. But I, I guess I don't. I think like I think sometimes I just want to enjoy I think like now that I'm older and like I talk a lot about representation in film and television like I appreciated that time in my life where I could just watch a show and just wish that like I had an apartment that fly or (laughs) I had an Aiden or Big and like those little things that we like obsessed about like should she stay with Big or should she go with like I kind of revel that well what do you think so there was this um there was this essay that made the rounds by this woman Julia Allison talking about how she like moved to New York to become a Carrie and she modeled that's the issue and she right and she modeled her life after it but I actually do think that there are strands in the culture that maybe you could argue not just the sort of Julia Allison like you know I did this dumb thing to become famous kind of argument but like I think in some sense of the feminism that we're living with, you Mm. could say that some of it came from Sex and the City, right? If you look at sort of the corporate feminism that sees Mm. money as power, Mm. um, sort of this like, you know, high-end girl power like the wing and glossier this sort of like image and money and power-based feminism, I think you could argue that like, you know, a, a generation of women who are are steeped in this show and its values, it's not totally surprising that that's where feminism has gone. And the first person industrial complex uh, mm-hmm. is, is very much Carrie's style of writing. And Wait, I'm not can you saying, say more about that? What do you mean? So, like, you know, the, so I think that's a term that was coined by Slate's own Laura Bennett to refer to the just the way that now there's so much encouragement to tell your story Mm. uh, as, you know, to get your break and to just be like almost the confessional as journalism. And, you know, which was, which was Carrie's method, you know, did you ever wonder and, 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 you know, essentially turning her dating life and her friendships and into her work Mm. and, you know, seeking success from huh. that well Which, if that's the case then i've definitely maybe that subconsciously seeped into my yeah i mean it, my way of thinking men, i mean god if i got a bonus for every time i write the letter i all right well listeners if you have thoughts about sex in the city favorite episodes you really hate it it's like nails on the chalkboard to you write in and tell us all right so let's do our recommendations uh, verilyn 
as our as our uh, <laughs> last minute villain. What do you yeah. got? I'm gonna put you on the front. Oh no worries. Um, I went to Martha's Vineyard this past uh, weekend. Fun. And on the car ride, I was put on to Kalani, who is this. I don't. I I don't know what genre of music we would say she is. I think she's like R and B ish. It's very old. Like what I listening to it, she has a lot of old school. Maybe Aaliyah. You know, wow. some Old like re- reminiscent of like brandy um, type beats and vibes, and I of course that went down a random <laughs> musical hole listening to everything that she's ever put out, and she's also just this like. You know, she has she's been um, criticized for passing um, as non-black. But recently she put out this Instagram, what I like to call an Instagram press release, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where she talks about, you know, being very black, being very queer um, and like knowing that her success could only be due to the because people call her brave for kind of just like saying what she wants and knowing that that bravery is really much on the shoulders of people that came before her. So. I just feel like she's just one of those, like, in the same light of, like, a Cardi B or a Rihanna, just like a bad bitch, just doing exactly <laughs> what she wants to do. And I'm so here for it. So, cool. Kalani. Right. Oh, cool. June, what about you? Very different. <laughs> but <laughs> also this weekend, I discovered, well, I started to watch and then became obsessed by and watched every episode, one after the other, the new HBO show, Succession. Oh, Ooh. me too. It's so good. Wait, you have, oh, we'll, we'll talk later. We'll talk but. later, yes. <laughs> I've I, only watched two episodes. Yeah, because I, I happen to have screening privilege. Uh. I happen to have screener privilege. <laughs> and I, so I had all 10 episodes and I just sat and watched them. And it kind of reminds me of Billions a little bit, which I also think is like a show it's not really that good but it's super watchable Mm -hmm. and I actually like Succession a little bit more it's like it's Billions meets King Lear meets like the Murdoch family picnic or family reunion it's really smart and funny it's it's, funny yeah and it also I have to admit that part of my enjoyment is that it does kind of confirm your belief that rich people are idiots (laughs) and that very rich people are extra idiotic and also that it must be absolutely impossible to be the child of a self-made billionaire uh it's it's just really really watchable and fun and i think i underestimated it because it was an hbo show that launched in june which Mm. is not usually a good sign but it is so watchable so succession on hbo i'm definitely gonna watch it because i know me and you have very similar like just want to watch something and like play like that's not gonna be too complicated (laughs) be funny in parts we have different views on the weather but similar tv tests yeah (laughs) (laughs) um I have a movie that I think everyone should go see. I I know it's out in New York. I'm not sure it's in wide release yet. Um, It's called Three Identical Strangers. And it's um, a story about three triplets who were separated at birth. Um, Is it a documentary? It's a documentary. Sorry, I should have said that. It's a documentary. Um, they're, They're... they sort of discovered each other in a very serendipitous way and actually became famous in, on sort of like the talk show circuit for having discovered each other in this way. But um, it turns out there's a really kind of a dark twist to their separation that I don't want to say too much about. Um, but it is super interesting in terms of psychology and nature and nurture and all mm. that stuff. Um, so it's a really crazy story, Three Identical Strangers. And um, if it's not playing near you, bookmark it for whenever it becomes uh, comes to a streaming service near you. Wow. Amazing. 
I so want to see that. As an only child, I've always been obsessed with like twins and triplets and multiples. So yeah. Even without these, this twist that you're mm. uh, nodding to. All right. And that is our show for today. Thank you to our producer and part-time guest, Verilyn Williams, our For Now production assistant, Daniel Schrader, the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And for June and me, (laughs) I'm Noreen Malone. We will see you in your feed next week with a slightly different cast. So see you then. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.